This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. E ma ho, thus did I hear. At one time the powerful lord of yogins, the great Haruka himself, greatly renowned as Jetson, Mila, Zepa, Dorje, was residing in the sacred place called Drukpa Puk in the region of Nayanam, turning the wheel of the great vehicle seated in the midst of his heart-disciple yogins, bodhisattvas abiding on the spiritual grounds. His fortunate male and female disciples, rainbow-bodied dakinis such as the five sisters of long life, and also gods of completely pure lineage, together with an assembly of human yogins and yoginis. So that's the opening passage from what is known in Tibetan as the Jetson Kabung, or the Mila Namtha. Um, we know it, in course, uh, of course, in English as the life of Milarepa. Uh, and it's the main source of information we've got about Tibet's great yogi saint. So tonight I'm going to attempt to tell uh, something about this uh, extraordinary life, or at least part of it, um, using this as a reference. I know some of you were introduced to this material last week uh, with Ratna Prabha, so you'll have to bear with me. Bhante said some time ago, actually, uh, read the Dharma as if it's literature, and read literature as if it's the Dharma. Yeah? I hope I've got that right. Um, but with the life of Milarepa, you're actually getting both, aren't you? You're getting uh, what's regarded as a, uh, a masterpiece of Tibetan literature uh, combined with profound teachings on the path, the Dharma. I've got two anxieties telling this story tonight. I'm going to do it in a given time, um, and I'm going to do the story justice, because it's a, it's a wonderfully rich story, yeah? and I'd urge everybody to read it if they get the chance. And speaking personally, uh, I'm quite delighted to be able to do this, because the text was quite an important inspiration for me uh, when I was a young lad in New Zealand, 21 in fact, the first book that I actually read, the first Buddhist book that I actually read cover to cover was The Life of Milarepa. Yeah? Uh, not only did it inspire me to really get involved in Buddhism, it inspired me to actually practice Buddhism, which is, is the important thing, no doubt. The second book I read, cover to cover, Buddhist book, was Sangharachita's autobiography, The Thousand Petaled Lotus. So I think I was quite fortunate in my choice of reading material at that age uh, in the south of the South Island of New Zealand. But although I've got an interest in Milarepa, I thought, well, why Milarepa? Now, I may be interested in Milarepa, but I don't assume everybody is. So I asked myself when I thought about this talk, I thought, well, what relevance has Milarepa got to us as contemporary Buddhists? It's a fair enough question, isn't it? Why don't we just stick to the Buddha and as immediate disciples for, for inspiration. Yeah? Milarepa's world, and our world, couldn't, at least on one level at least, couldn't appear more different. Milarepa's world is the world of medieval Tibet, 11th century, yeah? a time and culture where we would find very few common points of reference, I assume. He practiced a form of Buddhism that, at least in part, is quite... Magical, esoteric, quite ritualistic. Yeah? Um, some of it, at least, quite removed from the practices we may be familiar with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah? Some of it. He also spent a significant part of his time in solitary practice, high in the Tibetan mountains, a lifestyle, I imagine, that many of us here would not want to or perhaps could not emulate. Yeah? Um, there'll be no popping down the road for cappuccinos with our mates or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I ask myself this question, why is Melarepa relevant to us as contemporary Buddhists? I suppose you could also ask, why is the appeal of Melarepa so enduring? Yeah? 
It's been a very enduring appeal, both into Tibet and actually the early translations in the uh, 1920s in England. It's, it's been in print um, for many, many, many years. In fact, there's a new uh, edition of The Life of the Middle Rape. It just came out this year in Penguin Classics. I don't know whether you've seen that. Uh, so, why is the appeal of Milarepa so enduring? Here we are, a thousand years later, develop, uh, devoting two weeks to practice on the theme of his life. Yeah? But of course, I'm not going to answer those questions, uh, because I'm rather hoping that the answers will become more apparent over the course of the week. Evans Wentz, in his preface to The Life of Milarepa, talks of Milarepa as one of humanity's heroes. Yeah, so I quite like that phrase, one of humanity's heroes. So, the life of Milarepa. Actually, the life of Milarepa starts the story at the end of Milarepa's life. And it starts with an old man and it starts with a dream. Milarepa is with his disciples, as the opening suggests. They're living and practicing in a very beautiful location high in the Tibetan plateau. This is where you need the visual somewhere, don't you? Uh, we'll just have to rely on our imaginations, yeah? Um, but you can imagine this high Tibetan plateau valley, uh, probably ringed by snow-peaked uh, mountains, and a place called Nyanam. Apparently, uh, it's a place where Milarepa, not far from where Milarepa was born. Uh, he spent quite a lot of time up in that area. He spent quite a lot of time meditating in a cave called, uh, referred to as the stomach-like cave. Yeah. So Milarepa and his disciples are in this area. And Rajumpa, one of Milarepa's chief disciples, who I suspect is probably be, meant to be meditating at the time, is in his cave and he's sleeping and he's, he's having what we would call, I suppose, a big dream. Yeah. This dream apparently lasts all night. And he's in a place called Uddiyana Kundro Ling, which is the Garden of the Darkinis. Yeah? Sounds like a rather pleasant place to be. Yeah? Where the houses are made of precious gems, uh, all the inhabitants are, are dressed in radiant, beautiful silks and bone ornaments. Yeah? It's a sort of a pure land. And he meets a woman in red. And this woman in red tells him the Buddha Akshobhya is actually discoursing in this land. The Buddha Akshobhya is teaching on the lives and the deeds of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and the great Buddhist saints. Yeah? And Rajumpa is so overcome, he feels his hair stand on end and he's completely aroused by faith. And towards the end of the teaching, Akshobhya announces that tomorrow he's going to relate the life of Milarepa. And Rajumpa, in a sort of flash of intu intu intuition, realise that actually what's been communicated to him is that he needs to go and ask Milarepa about his life. Yeah? And Rajumpa uh, awakens at that point in a state of heightened awareness, a state of luminosity. And the first thing he feels is powerful feelings of devotion arising for his guru, for his teacher. He's completely overcome, um, overcome by these feelings. And as the text says, the dawn sun rose brilliantly in the sky. And Rajumpa goes off and has his breakfast. That's what the text says. <laughs> I don't know what uh, yogis ate in the 11th century, but uh, probably Sampra, I guess. Huh? Um, Jet, uh, Rajumpa then goes and uh, follows through his request. Milarepa is quite curt with Rajumpa and simply says, look, you know, Rajumpa, you already know my life story, but since you ask for the benefit of other beings, there is no harm in complying with your request. And he says, in my youth, I committed some black deeds. I did some bad stuff, some unskillful stuff. In my maturity, I, I, in my maturity some white deeds, some good stuff, some skillful stuff, but now I have been released from all distinctions between black and white, good and bad, skillful and unskillful. Having accomplished this task, I am one who doesn't need to strive anymore in the future. If you were to get me to describe the events of my life in full, relating some of them would cause people to cry, while others would make people laugh. And there's not much profit in that. 
I would prefer it if you just let this old man remain in peace. So obviously Mitarepa just wants to remain in peace. Yeah? But luckily for us, Rajumpa, of course, persists, and all his disciples persist, and we get Milarepa's life in full. Milarepa's family actually came from the northern part of Tibet in a place called northern Uru. Uh, and his lineage included uh, a very famous sorcerer, and I think it probably his great-grandfather or his great-great-grandfather, I'm not quite sure what, which was, were, were gamblers. And they gambled away the, the, the family's um, wealth. And so they, they moved south into an area of Tibet which borders Nepal um, uh, and into the, the old Gunthang province in, in a village called Kyangsa. And it's a very temperate part of Tibet, apparently. It's only uh, 3,000 metres above sea level, which sounds quite a lot to me. But uh, compared to some of the, 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 the northern parts of Tibet, uh, some of the plateaus there can be 4,500 uh, metres. So quite temperate. It's located on the western trading routes going down into Nepal. Probably only about 50 miles or so from Kathmandu. So his father was quite wealthy. He was a merchant, uh, herding yak, cows, sheep, growing barley, one imagines, wheat, and trading in the, in the south through Nepal, uh, as they did for centuries, wool, salt. Yeah? And he, st- he, he, he became quite wealthy. And he married a, a local woman, uh, a noble woman called White Jewel, or in some of the translations, uh, they call her White Garland. Yeah? And you get a little interesting insight into the character of this woman. Uh, quite a noble, proud nature. The text says she's skilled, skilled in tending to worldly affairs, clearly loathing her enemies and loving her friends. Yeah? So a very proud nature, perhaps a bit fiery yeah? in, in love and hate. And the father uh, prospers, builds a house, called the Four Columns and Eight Beams. Quite a significant house in the middle of this, this village. Mirarepa was born around 1050 CE. So we're talking about the same time as the Norman Conquest in uh, England. Yeah? And quite a, a comfortable upbringing. Mirarepa reminisces about him and his sister, Petta, having their hair combed, uh, plaited with gold and turquoises. Yeah? So a stable, obviously a stable, quite loving family. Some standing in the community. Um, but this relatively charmed existence was coming to an end because when Milarepa was about seven years old, his father realises he's going to die. Obviously one of the characteristics of Milarepa's teaching throughout his life is this emphasis on the basic Buddhist teachings, the transitory nature of human existence. Yeah? Um, the eight worldly concerns. Yeah? That's a very standard teaching. You often encounter this in Milarepa's teaching. Uh, we, we want praise, we avoid blame. We want fame, we vo- avoid infamy. We want pleasure, we avoid pain. We want gain, we avoid loss. And Milarepa's teaching is always rooted deeply in experience. And no doubt part of that comes from his own past, his own early life. The loss of his father, no doubt, must have been a huge blow to Milarepa and had quite profound implications for his family. Yeah? Uh, Milarepa's father entrusts all that he owns to the pater- his, his brother and his sister, Milarepa's paternal un- uncle and aunt, until such time as Milarepa comes of age. Uh, and then his property and house and land would be returned. Yeah? The uncle and aunt turn out to be less than ideal guardians or trustees, as you probably have already gathered in, in, in pr- Last week. In fact, just straight off, they pinch all the, the valuable stuff yeah, from the household. They take all the valuable things that White Jewel owns. And end up, they end up treating Milarepa and his family pretty much as unpaid servants. Yeah? Um, dressed in rags, eating food, so the text says, only fit for dogs. Uh, and instead of turquoise and gold adorning their hair, of course, it's adorned with thick with lice. Yeah? So quite, a, quite a, 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 an unpleasant life for many years. And you, know, you can imagine this once proud woman, white jaw, feeling quite deep shame, humiliation, yeah? uh, even degradation at the hands of her husband's family. She obviously bites her lip. She keeps her own counsel uh, to save face, no doubt. She knows it's only a matter of time anyway. Milarepa, when he comes of age at 15, uh, will have his property returned. 
or so they think. Uh, White Jewel possesses a small plot of land, so she uses this in order to uh, grow barley, which she uh, turns into chung, Tibetan bear, buys meat, and organizes a feast, yeah, a bear feast, uh, for the villagers and supporters, and also the uncle and aunt, who she gives pride of place in this feast, this banquet. And of course, at a certain point in the banquet, she stands up and speaks. And she reminds everybody present that actually her dying husband's wish was that when Milleraper came of age, then all that he owned would be returned to him. And that time has come. And of course, this isn't going to please the relatives. The uncle and aunt, uh, well, the uncle particularly, explodes. Yeah, um, He's uh, shouting, screaming, in fact, he's managed to convince himself that the property wasn't even theirs to begin with. Yeah? The property was actually lent to the father by the uncle and aunt. It was borrowed. And why should White Jewel feel grateful to them? Yeah? Yeah? They could have left them to starve. Yeah? So he completely loses control and then lashes out at White Jewel, yeah? slaps Milleraper across the face with the sleeves of his, his, what they call a tuba. And, of course, the mother is crushed. She's completely humiliated in front of everybody present. She's inconsolable. Probably feels, you know, that any shred of hope has been ripped, ripped away. This, the prospect of this life of degradation is going to continue. Yeah? She's left with nothing but her own bitterness. And as the uncle leaves, he issues a final challenge. Yeah? He says, if you feel strong enough, fight us. If not, curse us. So you get the impression from the text, at least, that Milleraker is a very dutiful son. He obviously loves his mother, and he's very concerned to alleviate her distress. So he asked her, what can I do? You know, he asked himself, what can I do to alleviate her stress? So he asked her. And his mother in the text says, I would like to see you draped in a fine cloak and mounted on a horse with your stirrups slashing the throats of our hated enemies. Yeah, strong stuff. But since such will not come to pass, I would like you to train to become an expert in black magic. Curses and casting hail in order to destroy those who have inflicted misery on us. And then she tells him that if he doesn't succeed, she will kill herself in front of him. Yeah? Which is uh, quite heavy, isn't it? Millerator obviously knows his mother and knows her well enough to know that she's serious. She's a proud woman. She's capable of doing this. Yeah? So he's taking this threat very, very seriously. So with a number of companions, Milarepa travels into central Tibet, into the provinces of U and Sang, to train in the black arts. And as he leaves, he looks back and has a premonition that he may not see his mother again in this life. I was talking to Bante about uh, this whole area of black magic and sorcery not long ago, and he was reminiscing about some of the sorcerers and local shamans in Kalimpong, actually. Uh, I think they're called the Jukari. Um, they used to come around and uh, ask for arms. Um, a lot of the locals were completely terrified of them, but Bante seemed to be quite happy to meet up with them and spend some time with them, yeah? Um, so no doubt in 11th century Tibet, you probably had these types of figures, yeah? both lamas from the old Nyingma tradition, shamans, performing all sorts of functions for the, for the, uh, the uh, communities. Yeah? Um, in fact, in Bant with, uh, uh, Bante had kept some of their magical texts, apparently, some of their, their rites. He doesn't know what he's done with them. Um, I asked him about them. He said, well, one was a love rite, yeah? Uh, you have to, uh, you have to uh, chant this mantra very, very precisely, but you have to do it standing on water. Well, so <laughs> I don't know if he's ever tried this one out, but uh, you catch me standing in the bath <laughs> reciting strange mantras, you know what's up. Um, so Milarepa goes off and finds a sorcerer in central Tibet. Yeah? and impresses this guy by offering him all he has, all his turquoise and whatever he's carrying, plus his body, speech, and mind. Yeah? 
This is quite typical. If you're going to go with the teacher, you offer them everything. Yeah? Um, and Millerape is obviously very serious and very determined. He wants to fulfill his mother's wishes. Um, he studies with this guy for about a year, but he doesn't really get anything that can have an effect. So the old sorcerer tells him, well, look, he's got a friend, you know, a fellow sorcerer he once knew, that he gave a very powerful magic rite to. It's called the Zardong Manak, the purple-faced Tsar, or as Evan Swens has it, the purple-faced basilisk, which I quite like. That which kills with the utterance of a single mantric syllable. You know? Quite a heavy piece of magic. He apparently swapped this for the ability to cast hailstones by pointing your finger. Yeah? Um, so these two old sorcerers must have played swapsies at some time in the past. So this sorcerer says, look, Milrabe, tells Milrabe to go off to this guy um, and he'll give you the magic. Uh, ironically, this guy is called Lama Ocean of Virtues. So it's, it's obviously quite a confusing time and. Central Tibet in the 11th century. Yeah? So curiously, Ocean of Virtues tells Millerator to build a cell three stories underground with a cell on top that you can't get into. It's not apparent how you get into it. I don't know quite what that's about. But Millerator applies himself very assiduously, very diligently. He's got a lot of energy and dedication. Yeah? Uh, and for 14 days, he goes through these magical rites. Yeah? And on the 14th night... These wrathful deities appear, bulging eyes and talons and garlands of skulls around their necks. Yeah? And they hold in their talons the bleeding hearts and heads of 13 people. Yeah. Meanwhile, of course, back in Kyansa, Mirapa's village, where he was born, disaster is overtaken, yeah? the uncle and aunt. They've been planning a wedding feast for their son. The guests are inside, and an old servant happens to go down into the lower quarters. Uh, in Tibet, the, the lower quarters are often the stabling, you get the impression. And what she sees is all these apparitions of scorpions, spiders, snakes, and toads, and lizards, things like that. And right in the middle, tearing at the, the central pillar, is this big black scorpion. Yeah? The scorpion in Indian uh, sorcery is uh, often used as, a, as an emblem, yeah? tearing at the main pillar of the house. And, of course, all the animals panic, the horses, and they're kicking against the pillars. Suddenly the pillars give way, the beams crack, and, of course, the inevitable happens. Yeah, comes crashing down, burying the guests. So the uncle and aunt are the only ones to survive uh, the carnage. So much to the disgust, of course, to the villagers, Millerapa's mother goes completely mad with joy. Yeah? Her bitterness turns to almost sort of savage glee, and she's up on the roof rejoicing in this carnage. Yeah? And even her supporters are trying to pull her away. The uncle and aunt, of course, uh, well, the uncle wants to take things into his own hands and go off and, 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 and do her in. Yeah? But, of course, the villagers restrain him. They say, look, you know, we have to deal with Milarepa first. Milarepa's mother is quite clever. She realises she's in danger. So what she does is she writes to Milarepa. Yeah? She says, we need a hailstorm. We need to warn off these villagers, which Milarepa dutifully does. He sends a hailstorm and completely wipes out the crops of the village. In my youth, I committed some black deeds. Yeah? These are the deeds that Milarepa committed, yeah? the black deeds that he speaks about. He's caused the death of 35 people. And so he returns with his companion to the old sorcerer in U and Sung in central Tibet. So, Milarepa has obviously been successful in seeing through his mother's wishes, but nonetheless, after a while, uh, as one would expect, he starts to feel very deeply distressed. Yeah? He's starting to feel terrible remorse for what he's done, which you can imagine. If you've ever done something even mildly appalling, uh, <laughs> 
not that I've really indulged too much in appalling acts, but uh, there is that feeling, isn't it? You put something out and you can't take it back. And remorse and shame and guilt can be quite harrowing. And these sorts of feelings, these sorts of furies, if you like, start to assault Milarepa. Yeah? And naturally, he realizes, actually, with what he's done, the only way out is to follow the Dharma, to gain enlightenment in this very life. Yeah? Milarepa in his text says, I felt remorse for the evils I had committed through casting black magic and hailstorms. I thought about the Dharma so intensely that during the day I forgot to eat. If I went out, I wanted to stay in. If I stayed in, I wanted to go out. Yeah? So from a traditional perspective, he also realizes actually with what he's done, the unskillful actions he's committed, he's bound for an unhappy rebirth in the lower realms. Yeah? Rebirth as, a, as an animal or a hungry ghost traditionally or a being in hell as they would have seen him. He's in the fix. And of course, he realizes that he needs instruction in the Dharma if he's going to get out of that fix. So Milarepa uh, consults the old sorcerer. The old sorcerer has another friend, a Zogchen master from the old school. And Milarepa, as determined as he is, takes up practice, but gets no results from that practice. Now, I suppose we'd probably say he, he has uh, insufficient merit in order for the fruits of practice to arise, yeah? Um, the old Zogchen master obviously doesn't know what's going on. Nothing seems to be happening. Probably not very good for his reputation either. So he says, look, there's a, a master, a Tibetan, a famous Buddhist teacher, a translator, called Marpa of Lodruk, yeah, Marpa Lotsawa. And he says, you already have a karmic connection with this teacher, Marpa. Marpa actually is quite an interesting character. According to the historical records, when Marpa was young, he was quite a handful. He was described as uh, an impossible personality, according to the records, yeah? Continually fighting with others, drinking beer, talking incessantly. Um, apparently, even Marpa's dad was worried that he would either kill somebody or they would kill him. So although they, they were quite a wealthy family, so they sent him off. They sent him off to Western Tibet, yeah, at the age of 11, to be schooled by a, uh, a famous, uh, another famous translator called Drokmi. Yeah? So Marpa spent some time with this, with this guy. But uh, Drokmi was quite tight-fisted with his teachings yeah? and uh, demanded quite expensive offerings for those teachings. So Marpa thought, well, I'll go and get them myself. So he converted all his possessions into gold at the age of 16 and went off to India. Apparently at that period, Indians loved gold, yeah? Uh, and Tibetans had a lot of gold. Tibetans loved esoteric teachings and Indians had a lot of esoteric teachings. So it was quite an ideal situation. But of course the journey in those days would have been quite something to go from Tibet down into India. Now, many, they know that many of these translators died, and not many of them actually succeeded. Uh, apart from the sheer physical hardships of the journey, you can imagine changes in altitude, the harshness of the weather, um, the heat of the Indian plains, which killed a lot of the Tibetans when they came out of uh, Tibet in the 50s. But also bandits and wild beasts, and no doubt tigers were around at that time. But also the fact that you had to master a language which wasn't yours, yeah, before you even thought about learning the, the complex Buddhist rituals. So, obviously, uh, quite a tough cookie, this character, Marpa. In physical appearance, he's meant to be very robust, almost corpulent, yeah? Uh, short, cropped hair, you see this in the Tankras, yeah? Quite a bull of a man, um, inspiring fear just by his, his physical presence, it seems. Just the sort to. Uh, to sort out Milarepa, one suspects. So while Marpa journeys to find, uh, while Milarepa journeys to find Marpa, Marpa has a dream. His teacher, the great Siddha, Naropa, gives Marpa in the dream a crystal vadra, yeah, and says, "Wash this vadra and mount it on a on a victory banner." And this is what Marpa does in the dream, and the light from the vadra 
radiates out across the whole universe. Mahaprabhu, of course, realizes the significance of this dream. He realizes, actually, that this is to do with a disciple that's about to appear. So he says to his wife, look, I'm off to plough the fields. I want two jugs of beer. Um, I'm expecting a guest. Yeah? Dagmina is a little bit confused by this, uh, a bit taken back. Marpa's got servants to do the menial work. He's, a, he's quite a, a wealthy landowner. Uh, but nonetheless, she complies, and Marpa goes off and starts ploughing the fields. Yeah? Milarepa, who's on his way asking the whereabouts of Marpa, comes across someone and says, well, Marpa's in this direction, and he comes across this farmer. And Susie sees this guy, he has this inexpressible feeling of joy. Yeah? But he doesn't know this, this farmer, this rather corpulent farmer, is in fact, fact Marpa. Um, but Marpa, keeping up with fiction, says, look, I'll arrange your invitation. I can get you to meet Marpa. Just finish the ploughing for me. So Milleraper dutifully ploughs the field. Yeah? Um, at the end of the day, uh, Marpa's son comes to fetch Milleraper and he's led into a large property, into a shrine room, yeah? where the same farmer is sitting up on three cushions. Obviously, this is Marpa. So despite being confused, uh, Milleraper prostrates himself and tells tells Marpa the whole story of his life, yeah? offers him everything and says, please look after me both spiritually and materially. Yeah? Again, quite typical uh, in those days. So Marpa, being a man of few words, fixes him with his gaze and says, look, I will give you the teachings, but I'm not going to look after you. Yeah? You're going to sort out your own food, your own clothing. Milarepa is happy with this, yeah? Um, he's after the teachings. He realises with what he's done, he needs to have the Dharma and practice the Dharma and gain enlightenment in this very life, or he's lost. He's desperate for the Dharma. So Marpa says to him, look, you're energetic, you're young. If you build a tower for me, for my son, uh, I will give you the teachings. So Marpa takes Milarepa out onto the plains of Lodrak, yeah? One imagines a, a fairly big plain. And they reach the eastern ridge. And Marpa says, he stops, yeah? And he picks up a stick and he marks in the ground and the dirt a figure for the foundations, a circular tower, yeah? So Milarepa, full of promise, getting the teachings eventually, hauls rocks to and fro and builds this tower, yeah? Uh, he's obviously hauling rocks on his back, uh, probably with a sort of fabric sling, one imagines, strung around his head as they, as they still do today. And laboriously builds this tower up and up and up, probably over the weeks and months that follow. However, when he's only half finished, Marpa comes and tells him to pull the whole thing down. <laughs> yeah? Haul the rock back to where it came from, put it all back in the place where you got it. And the only explanation he gives Paul Milarepa is that I hadn't considered this well enough, yeah? So Milarepa, over the following weeks, pulls it all down, puts the rock back. The Lama comes to him again. Marpa comes striding across the plain. This time he's a little bit unsteady on his feet. He looks a little bit tipsy. He's obviously had too much to drink. And he drags Milarepa off in the western direction. Yeah? And he says to him, last time... I really hadn't considered things particularly well. Yeah? This time, I want you to build a semicircular tower. Yeah? And he wants it built on that spot on the western ridge. And if Milarepa can complete this, then he will give them the teachings he's desperate for. So again, over weeks, possibly months, Milarepa, uncomplaining, builds this semicircular tower on the western ridge. And of course... Marpa strides across the plain and he says, this won't do. Yeah? I must have been drunk. <laughs> uh, remove all that rock uh, and place it back to where you found it. Yeah? Place it back where you found it. So again, 
Met a raper who's incredibly patient, incredibly dutiful, labours hard to tear down this structure. Sometime later, <laughs> uh, I mean, you can imagine Mar- uh, Mitterraper just hands and head, I think, as he sees Marpa striding across the plain. He says, what have you done? Yeah? I want a tower, triangular in shape, yeah? constructed on the northern ridge, which we're going to call the Tower of the Tantric Yogan. And if you complete this, I will definitely give you the desired teachings. So in spite of all that's happening, absolutely desperate, Milarepa works hard and finishes the triangular tower. But he's only completed a third of it, of course, before Marpa comes again. Marpa demands to know what is he doing. Has he gone completely mad? Yeah? He's built a triangular tower and Milarepa is trying to destroy him through sorcery. Yeah? with a tower that's built like a magic triangle. But Milarepa says, well, you you told me to build it yourself. Marpa, I don't remember. I don't remember that. You must have been out of your mind. I must have been out of my mind. I don't remember any such order. Do you have a witness? So Milarepa probably realises, actually, this is a a waste of time to argue. And again, works to haul the stones back to where he got them from. So by this time, the work is obviously starting to tell on Milarepa's health. Yeah? His condition is deteriorating. The lama's wife, uh, Dagmina, is starting to take pity on this poor, poor disciple. Milarepa's desperate. He's pleading with her to help him persuade the lama to, to, to give him teachings. So he goes to her husband and pleads on his behalf. But of course, he's not at all pleased with this. Uh, he says, look, I'll give you the refuges and precepts. Yeah? He gives Malarepa the refuges and precepts. But if you want initiation, you're still going to have to build a tower for my son. What I want is a ten-story tower with a walkway around the base, with an enclosed shrine room. If you do this, I promise you will get the teachings you desire. I don't think Malarepa really believes it anymore, perhaps. But of course, in some ways, he has no choice. He wants the teachings. He needs the teachings. So he sets out to complete the tower. So he lays the foundations of the tower. And he works, and he works, and he works. And by that, by the stage he's reached the seventh floor, his, the whole of his back is just one big bloody sore. Yeah? He's rubbed raw his back. Um, and as he comes near to the end of the trials, his back becomes a complete mess. In fact, it's infected. He becomes ill, ill with it. Marpa's wife, Dagmina, is completely beside herself. Um, She doesn't understand her husband at all. She can't understand why he's not giving Milarepa the teachings he requires. Um, Marpa, for his part, doesn't seem particularly bothered. He goes to Milarepa, gives him a folded sack, says, look, that's for your back. Get on with it. <laughs> He's a hard man. So all through this period, of course, many of Marpa's chief disciples are coming for initiation. Now, they come for the various tantric initiations that Marpa's able to give them. And the shrine rooms are full. And at every opportunity, Milarepa sneaks into the back of the shrine room. Yeah, Probably sitting somewhere where he can't quite be seen. Yeah? And on every occasion, Marpa asks him, where's your offerings? And although he's had various offerings that he can give from Dagmina, Marpa's wife, it always ends up in the same way. Marpa runs over him, grabs him, often by the scruff of the neck or the hair, and throws him out unceremoniously. No? At one point, he even gets thrown down the stairs. Yeah? So Milarepa is thrown into despair again and again. He actually runs away at one point. Um, he doesn't know where to turn. Yeah? Dagmina, Marpa's wife, in the meantime, has a cunning plan. Yeah? One night, she decides, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them all drunk. I'm going to steal the lama's precious relics, and I'm going to give them to Milarepa, 
and he can go and give them to a character called Lama Nogpa. Surely Lama Nogpa, uh, if he thinks Milarepa's come with Marpa's blessing, will give him the teachings that he requires. So that's what they do. Milarepa sneaks off up north to Lama Nogpa, who's delighted, of course. Uh, he's very privileged and greatly honoured to receive uh, these gifts from uh, Marpa, the, the precious rosary uh, from uh, Admala, from uh, Naropa. So he arranges a ceremony to install these relics in the shrine room. However, something doesn't quite add up. He gives Milarepa the initiations, he gives him instructions in meditation, nothing happens. Very puzzling. He's not quite sure what to do with this young disciple. And then he gets the letter. Marpa uh, writes to him, ostensibly to invite him to his son's coming of age. And by the way, as a sort of a postscript, you can bring that certain evil person that's staying with you back to me. Um, I want him back here, yeah, Milarepa. So, of course, the game's up. So Lama Nagpa, uh, Nagpa makes grand preparations for the journey. Yeah? And as Marpa, obviously, being the guru, requires a lot of offerings, he loads up all of his household items, uh, his gold, his turquoise, his silks, his garments, he takes his livestock, his yaks, his sheep, his horses, his cows. The only thing he leaves behind is the old she-goat, apparently. It's got a broken leg and can't make the journey. Yeah? So in that tradition, you offer everything to the guru. So he turns up with all his disciples in Marpa's place with all of this, well, goods and livestock uh, that he's bringing to offer. And Marpa looks at him, yeah, and says, look, I want two questions answered. Firstly, have you bought everything with respect to the offerings? Yeah? And secondly, why did you give Milarepa those teachings? Yeah? So poor Lama Nogpa is probably quaking in his boots by this stage. Yeah? As for the first question, question, yes, well, there was this old goat that uh, I had to leave behind. Uh. Marpa, being Marpa, of course, says, well, You'll be going back to get that, won't you? <laughs> um, no goat, no teachings. Yeah? Uh, in response to the second question, you can imagine Lama Nogpa is probably sweating profusely by now, I imagine. He says, well, I hate to say it, but it was actually your wife that uh, wrote the letter. Yeah. Um, I thought it was from you, but I've just found out, etc. So Marpa, when he hears about his wife's deception, is completely beside himself. Yeah, he explodes, he jumps up, apparently he grabs a stick, and he's off to go and beat his wife. Yeah? Doesn't sound a very Buddhist thing, does it? Um, but she's too quick. She's locked herself in the shrine room, <laughs> as you would, no doubt, bit of drama. But what's happened to poor Milarepa? Well, while all this is going on, um, something seems to have completely snapped in, in Milarepa. Yeah? He's finally just given himself over to complete despair. Yeah? He knows he's not going to get the teachings. He's given up almost. Um, he's blaming uh, his own past misdeeds for all the trouble he's caused. Yeah? He's got both Lama Nogpa and Dagmina into trouble uh, with Marpa. And so finally, the only way he decides that he can end it all is to kill himself on the spot. This is what he decides to do. So things are a bit of a mess in the Marpa household. It's complete chaos in some ways. Dagmina has locked herself away. Milarepa is threatening to kill himself. The disciples of Lama Nogpa are sitting, probably sitting, probably completely frozen in fear, not daring to move. Lama Nogpa is begging Milarepa not to do away with himself. And where's Marpa? Marpa apparently is just sitting there with his cloak pulled over his head, completely unmoving. Yeah. I'm not sure what he's doing, but he's just sitting there. So all of this chaos is complete whirling around him. And of course we know, don't we, that all is not as it seems. Yeah. 
In fact, the Lama's anger, Marpa's anger, and his treatment of Milarepa are actually just a skillful means to purify Milarepa of the bad karma that resulted from his own past deeds. And the treatment of Milarepa was in fact a necessary means in order to prepare him for the practice of the Dharma so that it would bear fruit in the future. Yeah. So Marpa's sitting there under his robe, motionless. Yeah. Eventually, he comes, rouses himself, asks Dagmina to go and fetch the great magici- magician, as he calls him, Milarepa, and says to uh, Dagmina, Tell him he's to be today an honoured guest. Yeah? So everybody's completely confused at this point. Yeah? Marpa addresses the audience and makes it clear that his anger was in fact no mere worldly anger. But all he did was necessary to help Milarepa on the path to freedom, to enlightenment. Curiously, uh, he also says that if he'd been able to plunge his spiritual son into despair nine times, he would have completely cleansed him. Yeah? Uh, but it was Dagmina's, Marpa's wife's, ill-timed pity, apparently, that prevented him doing this. So he was only uh, thrown into complete despair eight times. So the text ends at this stage by saying, uh, everybody, both Marpa uh, Marpa's disciples and Lama Nagpa's disciples, the servants and all the household staff, Dagmina and Milarepa, they all burst into tears. Yeah? Uh, they're just completely overcome. Yeah? One can imagine even Marpa perhaps moistening a little in the eye. Perhaps. <laughs> so it ends with uh, Marpa uh, initiating and instructing Milarepa into all of the teachings that he, the great translator, has brought back from India at such great cost to himself, risk to himself. Milarepa, of course, has now become a worthy recipient of such teachings, a suitable vessel. And Milarepa is able to finally enter the path of practice. So that concludes the story of Marpa's early life and his trials and tribulations at the hands of his guru, Marpa of Lodrak. Obviously, as we know, he's got a very long way to go and a lot of effort to put in before he achieves that ultimate freedom he's seeking as a practitioner. So what happened to Milarepa after his trials and tribulations with Marpa? Well, it seems that in the initial three or four years after these events, Milarepa was sent to meditate in solitude above the snow lines in the mountains around Ladrak. There, uh, apparently, he'd brick himself up in a small rock cell, um, probably making use of natural caves, and with enough supplies to last him uh, several months and carry out meditation instruction that uh, Marpa had given him. And then every so often Marpa would come and check on his experience, check on his meditation experience and his understanding of his experiences yeah, before giving him further instruction. Actually, Milarepa eventually left Marpa only after having a premonition of his mother's death in a dream. Yeah? It's a very poignant part of the, the life of Milarepa. Uh, to read, where he goes back to his village and he discovers the bones of his mother in this sort of mouldering refuse in this uh, collapsed house where he grew up. And he's completely overwhelmed by this. Yeah? Uh, in fact, the text says that he meditates for seven days using the, his mother's bones as a cushion um, and gains quite a profound insight into the nature of impermanence and insubstantiality. So much so that he actually vows to uh, renounce all worldly life completely and go into the, the mountains and meditate, practice day and night, unremittingly, without regard to his own life, until he has gained realization. And the, the traditional accounts say that he practiced these sorts of austerities for 12 years, yeah? surviving at times by eating nothing but nettles. Yeah? turning green in the process, apparently. So he dedicated himself completely and utterly to practice. And as he himself says in the text, I know nothing but practice. I am good for nothing but practice. I think about nothing but practice. He's totally dedicated to that.
So Milarepa practiced many types of meditation, including the practice of Mahamudra, which I know Majavadra is going to say a little bit about or touch on, touch on that next week. But Milarepa uh, was known for specializing in or being an adept at certain types of teaching that originated with Marpa's teacher, uh, Naropa, uh, known as the six yogas of Naropa, especially that uh, uh, called Tumo or the inner heat practices, yeah, which you no doubt have heard about. This is enabling him to survive in these high mountain ranges. Um, so, Mirapa practiced uh, these Tumo practices, um, practiced in the Tantric tradition, where the goal uh, is described as the union of these blissful. Uh, radiantly, highly positive emotional states uh, uh, combined with a realization of emptiness, the clear light of mind, as they call it in the texts. And of course, Milarepa didn't just practice for his own benefit, as we don't. We often think of uh, Milarepa up there in the mountains in complete solitude. Yeah, And of course, there were long periods like that, no doubt, at, at times in his life. But actually, probably for the greater part of his latter life, uh, certainly lived, um, so they say, until his 80s, would have been spent giving freely of his experience and his teachings. Yeah? Uh, just as in the life of the Buddha, Milarepa apparently died by poisoning. Yeah? He was given poison curds by a, a jealous lama. So he spent his life giving freely of his experience, his teachings, and he sung. Yeah? He sung songs to songs. Yeah? Uh, songs of realization and songs of truth. And he sung these songs to ordinary village folk and wealthy gentry. He sung them to patrons, uh, his own patrons. He sung them to his heart sons, his yogis and yogini brethren. And he even sung them to demons and demonesses, gods and goddesses. And a thousand years later, he still sings them to us. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.